Hey everybody, and welcome to another exciting and, you guessed it, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, Daniel Lobel, and happy 4th of July! Happy Independence Day! Fireworks sound effect. And uh, if you're not here in the U.S., uh, happy Thursday, I guess. All right, everybody, a lot going on in my life, and I think I'll just go into it and tell you. I've been losing weight. I've been in a program with a few guys trying to lose weight together. They've been doing it for a lot longer than I have, but they brought me in. And we check in with each other every day and make sure we've exercised and make sure we're eating right. And it's still a struggle. It's not easy. I can't tell you it got easy. But I, I dropped over 50 pounds, and then I put some weight back on because I got sloppy. Then I took it back off again, and that's it. It's a struggle. But uh, I figured I'd, I'd share it with all you guys because uh, you should know. You should know I'm going through this in case you're going through something like this. And if, if you're not, maybe you want to be. I've been doing a lot of recording for other people, recording other people's podcasts, making video production for people, just trying to do things to survive. And I've been doing stand-up, preparing for a new hour show in Edinburgh. And I'm going to go to the Edinburgh Festival in August and do a reworked show of my show last year, which is about weight loss, which I've been talking about my struggle with weight loss, being overweight. It's called Tipping the Scales. So if you're going to be out there in Scotland, in Bonnie, Scotland this summer, or if you know someone who will be in Scotland, please direct them to my show, Tipping the Scales at the Underbelly, which is exciting, but it's a lot of pressure. It's the biggest venue I'll have been at at the Edinburgh Festival. This is my third year going in a row. So first year I have a producer behind me. I'm excited. I'm nervous. And then the other really big piece of news is that, uh, and this probably won't mean much to you. I might have mentioned it once or twice on the show, but ever since I was a kid, I always wanted a Jeep Wrangler. My wife supported me and we got a loan and we got a Jeep Wrangler. It's secondhand, but I love it. Every time I go out, no matter what mood I'm in, when I get in that Jeep Wrangler, I'm really happy. I open the windows. Sometimes I take the top down. It's a, it's a huge lifestyle upgrade. I haven't had too many lifestyle upgrades in my life, but when I have had some, they've been significant, and this one feels pretty significant. It also means my expenses are higher every month, but I feel like it's worth it. Sometimes I think it's good to have things that motivate you to work harder. You know, if you have a bill that, uh, like an electric bill, I mean, I guess you, you want to have electricity, but it, you kind of take it for granted. But when there's something that you really want, but it requires you to work harder, to do more things, sometimes it's a good motivating factor. Kind of gives you a kick in the butt and goes, look, you like this? You like this lifestyle? You like doing this? You like this Jeep over here? I don't know why I got all Italian. I don't know. You like this? You like this freaking Jeep over here? You can work a little harder. So just telling you, I'm a happy man in a Jeep. Uh, I'm excited. This guest who's on the show today is our first musical guest. I mean, we've had comedic musical guests, but this is a strictly musical guest. She's not a comedian who also does music, that is to say. And I met her after one of my shows. She's friends with one of the other comedians who was on the bill. And afterwards, we started talking, and she intrigued me because I asked her about her music, and she said, I would describe it as spooky. I'm like, spooky? Who is this? 
Her name is Lola. So I, I was like, who is this spooky Lola? And I decided, yeah, what the heck? You know how many times you meet a musician or a comedian or whatever, and you never check out their work? Let me go on Spotify and see if she's on there. And she was. And I started listening to her music, and I absolutely loved it. So I invited her on the show. First, I read up a little bit about her, and her story is fascinating. And then I was like, you know what? I got to have her on the show. So that's our guest today, Spooky Lola, Lola Blanc. And uh, I think you're going to love her. I hope you're going to love her. I think she's terrific anyway. So before we get into that, uh, we talked a little bit last episode about a friend of mine, Gamyo, the hooded monk in Okinawa, Japan, a.k.a. Kevin. And his wife has come down with a case of the cancer. There's no nice way to put it, so maybe it's easier to say it jokingly. But it is serious. And I don't want to bum everybody out because this is actually an opportunity for you to do something uplifting rather than just go, oh, boy, too bad, you know. Cancer, that's horrible. No, you can take action. You can actually try and help reverse the cancer, help her get better, help her heal. Pay for some of her medical treatment. She's got a GoFundMe, and it's Kaori's Treatment Fund. It's K-A-O-R-I apostrophe S Treatment Fund on GoFundMe. And you can either go there, go to GoFundMe.com slash dash treatment dash fund, or go to PayPal and PayPal Ruly Blue Baby. R-U-L-Y-B-L-U-E-B-A-B-Y at hotmail.com. And believe me, everything helps. Please help them. She has stage three breast cancer and she's undergoing chemotherapy and will eventually have to have surgery. And the Japanese healthcare system only covers 70% of the treatment. The other 30% is absolutely devastating them. They're they're listeners of the show. They're good people. And uh, I really... Hope, pray that you guys will contribute to this amazing opportunity for you to help somebody get better, okay? They've gotten many generous donations, but they still have to sell Carrie's car just to keep up with these hospital bills. It's unfortunate, but because of this amazing age where we're all connected, I think it's an opportunity for you to reach out to a total stranger and help them, and hopefully in turn, it'll build good karma for you. It'll it'll bring good things your way, and it's just a good thing to do. If you have some money, any money, you give a little bit to charity. And here's a charity where you know it's not just going to some crooks, you know, who are going to pocket it and say, oh, we're, because you never know what charities to give to. Here's a charity you should actually give to. Okay, go to GoFundMe and type in K-R-E-K-A-O-R-I-S Treatment Fund, K-R-E's Treatment Fund. And I'll keep donating, and I hope you will, too. All right, before we go into the episode, I just want to say I've gotten some very nice emails, and I want to read a little piece of one from someone named Sharon, and I don't give out last names unless someone says give it out. Uh, She writes, hey, Danny, I've written to you once before. I love listening to your podcast. Not only do I love how you interact with your guests, but I love your honesty, a la Larry King. When you don't know something, it seems we all learn when it happens. But last night was a whole different ball game, both you and Barry. I've listened to you almost since the beginning and gone through all your angst with you. And last night, your interview with Barry was so smooth. It was so terrific to listen to how much the two of you have grown in your own separate ways. 
and that you've actually come out of your self-sabotage stage, in quotes, and are doing so many things in a positive light. I think Barry is masterful at the art of living, and the two of you had so much to share with each other. He is correct that he is, quote-unquote, light, and that he finds that in you. I'm so glad that he pointed it out and how much you have to be thankful for. And, uh, and then it goes on to say thank you and keep up the good work. I'm a devoted listener. Thank you very much, Sharon. And by the way, folks, when I get these emails, they really do brighten up my day. They are the light in my day. So you can always email me at thecomical at yahoo.com. And uh, I want to let you know I am very grateful. And sort of what I started the podcast with today was uh, gratitude for all the good things going on in my life. And there's more to talk about next podcast, but I'll leave it at that for today. Uh, I've got a Jeep, I'm losing weight, and I'm preparing for Edinburgh. And with that, I bring you, without further ado, my talk with the wonderful, lovely, talented, spooky Lola, Lola Blanc. Enjoy. When Daniel LaBelle was in school, he didn't pay any attention. He's older and wiser, he's learning philosophy with his comedian hench. People, each of whom is a wonderful sage in their own right as well. It's modern day philosophers, and now here's Daniel LaBelle. All right, I am here with my guest, Lola Blanc. That's me. That's you. <laughs> and you have the distinguished privilege of being the very first strictly musical guest on this show. Wow. Um, I feel honored. Yes. <laughs> That's what I wanted you to feel. Thank you. And the reason is because we met at a comedy show and you told me, hey, I'm on Spotify. And I went and I put you on and I haven't stopped listening. Yeah. And it's been months. And I'm like... <laughs> This girl is just beyond talented. I'm like, I, I started looking into you. I started researching you, and your story is phenomenal. And I was like, I got to have you on. So, oh, thank you. Thanks. I'm glad you like it <laughs> <laughs> and me. Thank you. Yes. So, let's start at the beginning because I've got only pieces of the story, but okay. you grew up Mormon, correct? Yes. Where were you born? Oh, I was born in Germany. But um, most of my, like, pre before I became a teen, most of my childhood was in Michigan. So were you born in Germany because your parents were on a mission there, or? No, my dad was in the Army. Okay. Yeah, he was in the Army and then the CIA. Oops, I'm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, gets mad at me for saying that. Um, but, <laughs> whoops, sorry, Dad. Uh, <laughs> Spy with a <laughs> daughter with a big mouth. <laughs> Oops, did I just blow the operation it's again? It's been like 20 years. It's fine. <laughs> he just gets weirded out because he travels a lot to foreign countries. Um, <laughs> but yeah, then Michigan uh, um, and then Utah, which is where all the like weird stuff happened. Yeah, the weird stuff is is pretty interesting. And we're working up to that. But, yeah. So your dad is CIA? He, he was, yeah. What, what kind of missions was he doing back then? Honestly, I don't think it was very exciting. <laughs> he like would tell me and I forgot every time because it was so boring but it's just some stuff for like four years and then he became a teacher okay mm -hmm. or did he become a teacher that's what everyone asks right because he travels to weird countries all the time on a teacher's salary <laughs> very interesting so what kind of work was there to do in Germany? Uh, this is the 80s, right? Well, that was the army. So mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a base in Augsburg, I guess. Um, but I left when I was a baby, so I have no memory. No memory of Germany. None. So what's your earliest memory? Uh, 
<laughs> Honestly, my earliest memory is having to pee really badly <laughs> in Michigan, driving in the middle of nowhere, and there was no bathroom. We pulled over, and I have all brothers, and they everyone went to pee on the side of the road, and I couldn't, I wouldn't pee outside, and my parents got really mad at me, and that's my first memory. I think wow. it was two. <laughs> <laughs> How many brothers do you have? Three. All older? Two older, one younger. Okay. How, what do they do now? Uh, one is studying education in Norway. One is like a genius programmer boy in Utah. And one is like sort of a lost soul DJ, musician, screenwriter, trying things type. An artist. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Yeah. So your parents are still together at this point, And your mom did what? Uh, well, at which point? Because they got divorced while we lived in Michigan. Okay. Yeah. So at the point of when you had to pee on the side of the highway. Oh, at that point. Yeah, they're together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what what did she do? I don't remember. Really? I think I just held it and we just figured it out somehow. I managed to not pee myself. Okay. So So were you Mormon when your dad was in the army then or were you always a mormon family? yeah yeah they, so my my dad grew up mormon and my mom converted to mormonism when she was like 16 or 17 from what um her family was uh, some generic christian like baptist or methodist generic. or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> um store brand christian yeah and they yeah. didn't like her becoming a mormon it was a big problem in the family but she did and that's how she met my dad and they got married like almost immediately after they met wow yeah Okay, so that's a romantic story, <laughs> but it didn't stay romantic, I suppose, because they got divorced. Yes. So, uh, how old were you when that happened? Um, I get confused about how old I was. It's somewhere between six and eight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Seven. Maybe seven. <laughs> <laughs> that is between six and eight. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you like any aspects of growing up Mormon? Because I know you left it. Yeah, um, I, I guess. I mean, I loved how many like group activities, like community events there were. We would have like Oktoberfest at our barn in Michigan and like the whole church would come over and like there was a chili cook off and, you know, like that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I miss having some sort of like routine place to go. But other than that, I felt pretty isolated most of the time, even as a kid and didn't understand why I couldn't wear a certain thing or like talk to a boy if I wanted to at whatever age or why people were like not nice to my mom because my mom got excommunicated at a certain point and that was like how did that happen she slept with her after my dad she was in a relationship with a man and then um she slept with him and she confessed to her bishop and she got excommunicated over it which by the way I've learned since is like not standard practice they're not supposed to do that mm -hmm. um but they did so it's like basically wearing a scarlet letter everyone in church knows and it was like we were like the sinner family I feel like I was excommunicated from the comedy world but nobody's admitting <laughs> to it <laughs> she wasn't allowed to speak in church so if you're not allowed to speak around people that might be a sign <laughs> what does that mean you're not allowed to speak like what would happen if she'd spoken um, I don't know. I don't think anything would happen, but I think the gen you're just like not supposed to. Um, mm -hmm. You're supposed to feel shamed. You're supposed to be like publicly so, so people, shamed. People come up to you. How are you feeling? Good. You're supposed to be feeling shame. <laughs> and anybody tell you? Yeah, and you can't take the sacrament. And there are some other things I forgot. Like, but yeah, it's a whole shaming process. What were the worst parts about being Mormon? Uh, having so much 
guilt associated with any and all sexual feelings was probably the worst thing for me. Um, and also just magical thinking. I'm like not a fan of magical thinking at all, which I'm sure you can imagine at this point. From the author of the song, The Magic. <laughs> but that's the, that's the point. That's what the song's about. I wish I could believe, but I don't, yeah. you know? Um, like my parents got married after seeing, like having a dream or something and seeing a sign and just like all these decisions being made based on like signs and like prayers and dreams. And um, so because do you think because the fact that the romance didn't last, you interpreted it as bullshit and therefore like in your song, I want to believe in the magic. You're saying you want to be more optimistic, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I want to believe in love. I, it'd be fun to believe in God, probably, or just at least more comforting. And, and like just that feeling of knowing that magic is real when you're a kid, like that's, I wish I could feel that way. So you feel your, your parents and maybe the Mormon church ruined magic for you. Yeah, they did. <laughs> but also just growing up is part of that, I think. Uh-huh. You have this idea of what love is supposed to look like and the realities of that are nothing like what you think it's going to be. And um yeah, adulthood is just so much more like depressing and boring than childhood. It's certainly like the fight of every artist, I feel, is to hold on to the magic. Because when you're a kid, you literally can make anything happen. You can take a piece of plastic and make it into a world and make it come to life. And mm-hmm. and so you do have that magical feeling. And I think what happens to artists is they they try desperately to hold on to that inner child. And as the rest of the kids start becoming adults around them, it's very hard to survive in that world because we are, we're like isolated and trying to hold on to this excitement and this feeling that we're also baffled by the fact that nobody else seems to be uh, upset to lose. Yeah, totally. I'm like, I'm working on a, a, a script. I'm working on a future script right now, but it's about my childhood and it's about that very thing. Just like want, wanting to create this world that's recreate that feeling that you have when you're a kid. When did you lose the magic? I think I lost the magic when I was a teenager. Um, when I, it was sort of a slow transition out of Mormonism, but once I was out, I was out. And by 18, 19, I was totally out. Are you excommunicated? No, because I left. So you excommunicated them. Yeah. <laughs> you turned it on them. You're exactly. Like, you can't not talk to me. I'm not going to talk to you. <laughs> Excommunication is for people who want to repent, and I don't. Uh-huh. Yeah. So your mom wanted to repent. Yeah. Yeah, she was very devout. She was very, she was devastated that she was excommunicated. She wanted nothing more than to be a good Mormon woman, you mm-hmm. know, and that was in that vulnerable state that she met um, the dude who kind of, Took advantage. Screwed us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you put it better. Um, yeah, but I especially especially as a convert, I imagine she had this desire to to fit in because my wife is a convert to Judaism and mm. I see it with her that there's this desire to sort of like go extra far to prove that she's Jewish sometimes. Right. And I, I imagine yeah. your mom probably went through some of that in the Mormon world. I think so. I mean yeah, from the beginning, you're, you're coming in with that. But then now you've been deemed a sinner and you've been deemed not a part of the in-group or whatever. So mm-hmm. you finally get back. And yeah, she, want, she, like, she wanted to be the best Mormon she could be. 
How old were you when you had your first boyfriend? Well, it depends on your definition of boyfriend. <laughs> Probably 15 or 16. Uh-huh. And that was within the Mormon church? Yeah. Um, but I had started I had started to rebel. <laughs> okay. So what did that rebellion look like? Uh, just like wearing the immodest clothes I wasn't supposed to wear and going on dates without um or like just going beyond what I was supposed to do basically with boys, which I, you know, wasn't sex yet at that point, but still mm-hmm. it was stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, we, uh, <laughs> I was barely rebellious as a teenager. Like I say rebellious, but I've still never had a sip of alcohol uh-huh. <laughs> and I've still never smoked weed. Um, so it wasn't really that rebellious, but at the time, like I got my belt, my friend pierced my belly button uh-huh. and someone at church saw it and told my dad and <laughs> it was a whole drama. So he didn't take it well. No. Is he still a religious Mormon? Yeah. Yeah, okay. totally. And he and he, his wife. Did he remarry? He mar- yeah. Yeah. Does he have a whole nother family? Uh, well, she has her own grown kids, but they never had kids together or anything. So you were seven-ish when the divorce happened. Yeah. And you went to live with your mom. Yes. Okay. And, and this is around this time that all these things start happening. She sleeps with this guy. She confesses to this bishop. She becomes excommunicated. You start rebelling. And then she meets this guy who screws you guys. And this Mm -hmm. is like a crazy story. So (laughs) I'll let you tell it. Okay. Um, So we ended up in Utah uh, after several moves. We moved a lot. And my mom meets this guy at a Mormon singles dance who um, looks mysteriously like a guy that she'd seen in a dream who she'd told me about, who looks mysteriously like Joseph Smith, who's the founder of the Mormon church. Uh Um, But she doesn't think anything of it at first necessarily. She just like, um, but he latches onto her and like starts basically charming her. Um, Charming isn't even really a great word. That's what you do with snakes. (laughs) (laughs) She is not a snake. No. Um, he, he, he eventually, basically she was trying to convert him to Mormonism at first. He was pretending to be an atheist and she's like, no, Mormonism is real. Uh And after this, it became this process of him saying, actually, you're right. Mormonism is real, but the prophet right now is not the true prophet. I'm the true prophet. And here's how, (laughs) (laughs) here's how, you know, it's because I'm translating the scriptures, which is exactly what Joseph Smith did. So he was a fake atheist. He was a fake atheist and then a fake prophet. (laughs) So many different kinds of fake things. Yeah. Uh, And he basically, it's like, so such a weird process by which you convince somebody that you are, like a chosen person of God, but um, he got other people involved to vouch for him. And um, she prayed about it and, and he had this like pretty believable scripture going on, I guess. How long of a period did this go on for? So this was just a matter of months, this convincing. Um, But, but once, yeah, but once it happened, then it, like the whole thing was surprisingly short. It wasn't like a year's long. This all probably was in the span of a year, maybe. This is, this is already just like a mind-blowing story. <laughs> I'm an atheist. You should believe. I'm a prophet. Wow, that was fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, she, she, you know, she didn't believe him right away, but he's done this to many women. Um, 
And I guess he has his techniques. He has his ways. And I'm, I'm, I hope we've all seen Wild Wild Country. <laughs> but have you? No. Oh, wow. It's great. You should watch it. Okay. Um, but it's just like the smartest people can get, um, what's the word? I guess convinced by these manipulative people who find their vulnerabilities and find their weaknesses and prey on them. And that's what he did. So, um, so he was preying on her and she was preying on him <laughs> she's, hey. in a different way. <laughs> and she's like, is he a prophet? I need to know. I need a sign. And, and how were her prayers answered? I don't, I don't remember. I would have to ask her that. Um, but it, like, I, I think there were, a, the, the fact that he looked like the guy in her dream was a big one because she had told me even before she met him that it felt like a really significant dream. And he was, he's also just really good at it. You know, mm-hmm. he's really good at like making things appear to be divine. He now has a whole group. So clearly he's doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so he got people to vouch that he was a prophet, you said, to, mm-hmm, to your mom, people mm-hmm. that she knew? Uh, people that he introduced her to, okay. um, one of whom was his secret girlfriend uh, who was in on this whole scam, basically. And and then other people, I, I think there was maybe like, a, like some phony expert on scripture or something. I can't remember all the details, but um, it was this whole process. Are there any details that you remember, like where he was like, watch this little miracle I can do or something, something along those lines? Well, no, because I didn't know until I found their letters to each other. Handwritten letters? Mm-hmm. Or maybe there were some on the computer, actually. No, it started with the computer. We also wrote handwritten letters to him um, because he went to jail. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But not for this, just for unrelated things. Uh But so I didn't know what was going on at all. I just like knew that he was in my mom's life and he was had some charity that he was trying to raise money for. And then I found their letters to each other in which they talk about her being chosen and him being a prophet and... I was 12 um, and I was still very religious and very Mormon at that time. And the Mormon culture is so, and this is such a huge part of it. Um, In Mormonism, there is a piece of the Book of Mormon that is allegedly missing. Um, Joseph Smith was translating it and then this piece goes away and legend has it that it comes back in the end of days and then and then this like brings about the second coming. Um, so it leaves this opening for multiple people have done this. Nobody, like, by the way, in any religion is satisfied with the first coming. Nobody, <laughs> everybody, it's, it's like everybody's greedy in one seconds in every religion. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, because seconds means you get to be a part of it uh-huh. and you get to be special and a part of the end of days of Christ resurrection again but i wonder if there's something to that for you know i'm i'm an observant jew but i always have these issues with messiah thinking where i think yeah it would be nice for a messiah depending on what that looks like i just don't understand why everybody's always waiting for someone like someone special why not be the special person you know like why not and not in the way that this guy tried to to be the prophet but yeah why not just be why do we all have to hinge our hopes and it's not just you yeah. know Mormons or Jews. It's it's everybody. They're all waiting for somebody to come back and save them, or to 
come for the first time and save them. But, Every, but, but people want to be saved. This, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It lends itself to dependent thinking. It's like, mm -hmm. why not save yourselves? Yeah. I mean, you know? I totally agree. But saving yourself is harder and scarier and more mental work. And that's brains like to take shortcuts. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. People are susceptible, especially when they're searching or, or wanting to belong, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sorry I took you off track. Um, so you were saying it's going to come back in the second coming as this missing piece of Joseph Smith's prophecy? Uh, well, it's like the final piece of the Book of Mormon, the okay. like scripture. Um, so yeah, so it leaves this opening for dudes to be like, hey, I'm translating it just like Joseph Smith did. Nobody could see it when he was translating it. It came from an angel. So what's the difference if nobody can see it when I'm translating it from an angel? It's just like such a bad setup. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and there's also such a culture of like feeling like you're the chosen people. You're chosen and everyone else is not. And you, you like you're special. You're part of the special group and you're being persecuted at that in that group. So if anything happens to your leader, it's because of persecution and and like, yeah, Joseph Smith was a terrible guy <laughs> who How so? Yeah, he decided polygamy was a good idea because he wanted to fuck a bunch of chicks, basically. Can I say fuck? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and was just a total con artist. I mean, he was a huge con artist. Sorry if there are any Mormons listening who disagree with me, but he what well, he was. He was a bad dude. Um, and uh, and it leaves such an ex excuse for these guys if they do something wrong. It's like, oh, well, the world is persecuting me. The world wants to imprison me for these false crimes that I have not committed because I'm doing the right thing and I'm the prophet. It's the same thing. My mom lives in this polygamy town now. Um, she is not a practicing polygamist, but she helps these people. And their leader is the one who was arrested for taking all those child brides. Um, and they believe that all the evidence is false and he, the world is just persecuting him because he's the true prophet of God. Mm -hmm. You know, that was a tangent as well, but <laughs> no, no, it's an interesting one. Yeah. Um, so anyway, basically that's all to say that this culture really primes people to be um, targeted and to yeah. be victims. Yeah. You wind up susceptible to all these kind of false prophets and, um, charlatans exactly okay so your mom fell into that but it was all set up for that to begin with exactly yeah okay um so then he has her and what does that mean he has her so she then, moves in with him or no no he um he just has her under his thumb basically um and once that happens then the process begins of of taking control of her whole life so it starts with um having her sell things to um, give him money to, to finance this charitable foundation, which by the way, I was 12 and I was building an HTML website for you were? <laughs> for his charity called the, uh, uh, the widow's might foundation, which of course was a fraud. Um, but so it starts with her selling her things and then like jewelry or what piano wedding dress jewelry like wh whatever we had by the way we were poor we were not like there wasn't a lot so we basically we got rid of everything that was even remotely valuable um and then he told her that he she needed to be separated from her children and he ordered her to um put us up for adoption which she did not but what did happen was she went to live in this little, it's like cr creepy, shitty 
sort of halfway house with all these like terrible dudes living in it. Um, and I went to go live with another family in Orem. Well, let's let's pause for one second. Yeah. You must have asked her, how did he convince you that you should be separated from your children? Because that goes against maternal instincts. It's like a big, that's a big step. But it fits right in with Mormon instincts because Mormons believe that suffering is um, virtuous and, and that you must make sacrifice in, in this life in order to have eternal bliss in the celestial kingdom in the next life. And there were threats being made on her. Um, uh, in Mormonism, there's like the celestial kingdom, which is mm-hmm. the highest kingdom of heaven. Um, he was making threats to her ability to be with her family in the afterlife, basically. So her eternal... Um, happiness depended on her uh, mortal suffering. Yeah, you're basically. saying, look at the the big picture here. Yeah, I mean, he he straight up made threats constantly to like, if you don't do what I say, you will never see your children in heaven. If you don't do what I say, you will be damned, and so will your kids. And and she was just buying it all, hook, line, and sinker, <laughs> as they say. I mean, once he once she believed in him, yeah. He obviously didn't start with that. <laughs> mm-hmm. You don't open with, uh, I'm threatening your eternal salvation right. when you first meet the person. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, once once she believed in him, he uh, that was how he controlled her. That was how he got her to do what he wanted her to do. Now, was it also a relationship of a sexual nature? Were they? It was. Yeah. It wasn't at first, but then it was because what cult leader doesn't have sex with his followers? Right. I mean, that's like a lame. key yeah. piece of being a cult leader. <laughs> You're just not doing it right. It's in the <laughs> yeah. it's in the cult leading for dummies. It is. Yeah. Um. Yeah. They all they're all sex cult leaders, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So it was a sexual, and he, but he also told her that they were spiritually married, and it was a, a sacred. They were sacred sexual encounters protected by this like God marriage or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this is like wild. <laughs> yeah. So she moves into a halfway house without him. Without him. Well, he, I think he might've been in jail at that point. I'm not totally clear on the timeline of his prison stay. Why did he go to jail? For something else. I think he punched someone or something. He's just a general criminal. As all prophets do. <laughs> He's like a like a petty criminal who also happened to be a prophet. Um, <laughs> but he's a prophet, and he gets into a bunch of bar fights, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then but then my brothers were living with my dad, so we like I had a choice to live with my dad, but I wanted to be near her, so I stayed in Utah, and one of my other brothers also stayed in Utah. Was that because you didn't get along with your dad, or no? I just I believed that my mom was a part of this bigger mission for god and i knew she was having our time and i wanted and i thought i was a part of the big mission for god as well so i wanted to be near her and near it and not go to another state to california mm-hmm. and you were doing the website work, and i was so. doing the website i needed to be near him to do the website <laughs> yeah okay so describe the halfway house a little more so uh, it was just like really scary. I mean, I'd be so curious to see it now as an adult to see what it actually looks like. But in my child brain, it's this terrifying place. And it was. Um, the The bathrooms are in the hallway. She's the only woman in the building. Like she, there was basically, I think the, okay. So here's where it gets kind of weird. There was like a, I think the pimp lived in the place, but there was, there were, either way, there was a pimp who was like in charge of my mom. A Mormon pimp? 
not a Mormon pimp, but like, so like this pimp, guy. Pimp, like feather in his hat with a cane and a white feathered, like. I mean, I don't jet. know if that's what he looked like, but there was a pimp there. This, <laughs> this guy, what were you going to say? Sorry. Uh, oh my God. I need to ask my mom about some of these details because it's been a while. But uh, there's, it's just like a lot of criminals and scary people and my mom. <laughs> okay. Um, and I'm not saying his real name. I don't like to. Um, okay to say his real name so say this guy this guy Adam. We, i call him adam adam uh basically is in communication with these people and some of these people and have in instructing men to come to where my mom is and adam is the fake prophet uh, adam is the fake prophet yes. and he's operating from prison at this point and telling guys to come to the place he, where your mom is he might have gotten out of prison but he definitely met guys in prison who he directed to come to where my mom is. Mm -hmm. um, and my mom was uh, very brutally assaulted in that building by multiple men at once and um, was also just forced to, uh, to have sex with, luckily there weren't that many, but there were some and it was all at Adam's command because it was God, what God wanted her to do. And I, she's kept a lot of the old letters. She's kept a lot of the evidence. And it's really crazy to read now because she's pleading with him and begging him. She's like, I don't understand why God would want me to do this. Why would he want me to do this? This is against you, you, premarital sex. This is against so many things. This doesn't yeah. make sense. And he is just, his responses are just like, you will be damned if you don't you will never see your children again if you don't and like so where are you living now that your mom moved out i'm living with some family from church there was i like had a friend at church and i wanted to stay near my mom and i guess i just asked his mom if i could live with them for a while so i did how was that it was okay <laughs> they were a big Mormon family with like a scary Mormon dad, but they were fine. They were, I mean, they were really kind for taking me in when they didn't need to. Mm -hmm. But I like, I didn't feel like I belonged and I wasn't happy. And my secret happy place was like, well, they'll all see when I bring in the second coming and I'm a part of the <laughs> chosen few to bring about the end of days, you know? So you're fully still in it at this point. Oh, too. yeah. 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 So, yeah, as you mentioned, that's why you stayed. But uh, so you're staying with this Mormon family and in your mind, you're out Mormoning them all. You're oh, like, yeah. <laughs> are there like traditional Mormon meals? Are there dishes that are like not really Mormon? Just like casserole, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Just like boring American food. OK. Yeah. <laughs> There's no Joseph Smith cookbook. <laughs> there is not. That I'm aware of. I feel like that would be a seller. It would. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you have like eight recipes from different wives on each page. <laughs> and they're all casserole. <laughs> this is how I do it. <laughs> they're all Yeah, they're all casserole. Um, okay, so your mom is now being s assaulted, sexually assaulted, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. being forced to have sex with all these different guys Yeah, in a halfway house. Mm -hmm. And you're living in in this false bliss that you're bringing in the second coming with HTML and you're, <laughs> uh, that's how it's going to go down. <laughs> right. So what happens from there? So what happened was one of the guys, um, 
or maybe maybe he was the only one who actually met him in jail but the, a guy who met him in jail um adam told him hey like i've got this girl you can go to mm-hmm. her um he came to my mom and did the deed and he knew what was going on because adam had told him in, like been bragging in mm-hmm. jail um and he saw where she was living and saw the state that she was in and she's super depressed by this point she's suicidal um he like of course after he came i think um he was he broke down crying and was like this is terrible i need to get you out of here this is all a lie i can't like live with myself um and that was it and she already she'd been like on the brink and like yeah so i think it all just came crashing down at that point and she um basically came to where i was staying and was like this none of this is real and i was like i fucking knew it <laughs> yeah um part of me like I, I i i wrote this in the article i wrote about it but um i had been praying because you know there's like this sort of rote prayer you always mormons always do or like um i know the church is true and i know that x is a prophet and um and I remembered praying and like not being able to get it out that he was a prophet. Like I couldn't get myself to say it because mm-hmm. um, something just fell off. And I took a note and I was like, okay, I'll remember that if anything like is weird in the future. And mm-hmm. then she came and told me and I, I uh, yeah. And we kind of just <laughs> moved forward. Like um, we didn't, we, she, she got a new place and I moved in with her. My brother moved in with her and um, How long were you guys separated for? I think it was a few months. Okay. Um, yeah, probably like three months. But that was just it. She like she left him, and he like I guess accepted it. I don't I don't exactly know. But then there was like she tried to go to the police about it. They wouldn't help her. She tried to go to the church about it. They wouldn't help her. Nobody would help her. Um, so we just sort of had to like move on. So you fled. We fled, but still in Utah, but yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> a very short fleeing. We fled to like another city. <laughs> yeah. So, so is this, I'm, I imagine this is when it all started to break apart for you. You're like, okay, so what happened, mom? You were had different guys coming in and having sex with you. Did she tell you that? She didn't tell me that at the time. She told me years later. So um, what did you think had happened? I didn't know. I knew she was living in this place. I'd come to stay with her a couple times there. She'd had like a stalker banging on the door and trying to break in. Like it, it was, I knew it was a scary place, but I didn't know the extent to which it was scary. And uh, I just thought, I knew she was sad. I knew she was upset. I knew she was suffering, but I didn't know why. And I thought that that was just part of the deal. Is it just a test? It's always a test in Mormonism. Mm-hmm. Um, how much can you suffer for this reward, you know? And I was suffering without her too, because I'm 12 and I should be living with my mom, you know? Yeah. Um, and she was so, she was like, she was traumatized for a long time. She wasn't like there necessarily all the way for a while. Mm-hmm. She's, she's doing great now, but yeah, it took a while. That's good. Yeah. So did this shatter her faith in Mormonism as soon as she got out? <laughs> well, uh, the thing about my mom is she's like the most optimistic person that I've ever met in my life. Um, so no, not right away. Now I don't think she would call herself Mormon. I don't think she would say she believes in the 
traditional idea of God. Um, I certainly don't, but she like kind of tried to stick with it for a while, which, you know, <laughs> even after that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not with him, not with him, mm-hmm. but, um, she liked, she loved church. You know, she loved going to church. She loved feeling spiritual and, and religious and, and she gave it at the old college try for a while. So you're in this new town now. Mm-hmm. You got your mom back. Yeah. What are you about 13 now? Mm-hmm. Okay. So when, when, at what point do you stop this thinking of like you're part of this second coming special club? Well, immediately. Um, Even though she didn't, she was still sticking with it. Well, she wasn't sticking with the guy's version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but she still, she didn't like give up church right away necessarily. Um, and I didn't either. My dad, my dad was still very Mormon. I'd go visit him, lived with him sometimes. Um, so it wasn't like I made the choice necessarily. And it takes a while to, to like really unload those you're just so mired in these beliefs and these ideas and this culture. Like it takes a while. Is any of that still with you? I, I like to say no, but have, being in therapy now, I'm like maybe more than I thought. Um, but I, I don't believe in it at all whatsoever. It's more just like associ- associations that I formed at a really young age with sex. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you moved to this nearby town. Mm-hmm. You're 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, your mom is like trying a new thing now there. You're readjusting. New friends, I imagine. New school, all that. Um, yeah. Yeah. We were close enough to our friends that I could see them sometimes, but pretty much new. Yeah. And what at, at this point, is this when you started doing music? Oh, no. I started when I was nine. How, how did that begin? Uh, I really loved the Spice Girls, and I wanted to <laughs> be like them, <laughs> so I started writing pop songs. <laughs> and and I should remind the listeners, like your pop songs, and they're almost they're more than pop songs, but your songs they do have a pop kind of feel, mm-hmm. but they also have this really great like they're grounded. This this it's it's interesting because I was looking at you wrote a song that Britney Spears bought um, called Ooh La La. Well, I don't know about bought, but yeah, she she recorded and released it. Yeah, she didn't buy it. Then they don't they don't buy them from songwriters. So how does that work? They just use them and they pay the producers, and the songwriters don't make money for two years. That's a whole separate conversation. Wow, that's insane. <laughs> yeah. But so I listened to your version of it, which is it it is like a a gravelier, sexier version. It's, it's yeah, it's grittier. Boy, 
Yeah. And then Brittany like just turns it into bubble gum. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was also intended for children, so they needed to change some of the saucier lyrics. Sure. But I'm not just talking lyrically. It's just also in the presentation. So you kind yeah. of have this. When I asked you initially how you described your music, which is, by the way, the worst question, I think, when people ask me how I describe my comedy, I, <laughs> I always just listen to it. You describe it. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I made them, you know, the rude, I did the rude thing of asking you how you describe it. And you said spooky. Yeah. That's also kind of what intrigued me to check it out. I'm like, spooky? What is this spooky music? <laughs> it's a little spooky. But it's a little haunted. Yeah. So, I, you know, I feel like that maybe with your past and everything that your family went through and you lived through, there is this haunted element to you as well. I I, I would agree with that. So where I'm a little does, haunted. Where does that come from, aside from what you told me? Uh, I don't know how to answer that. Um. I think maybe it started after that. It, it actually might have, um, because I remember my mom having me read these books about cult leaders and sort of like educating me after that point. Um, and then I got into like serial killers and went through this depressive phase as a teenager. I mean, who doesn't, but you know, mm -hmm. cutting myself and um, I guess not everyone does that, but, <laughs> but the depressive part, yes. Yeah. Um, and it sort of just became ingrained into my being this like, this acknowledgement of the darker side of things, I guess. And aside from that experience with my mom, like there were a lot more, like they, none of them were quite that intense or prolonged, but there was a man who broke into our house and attacked her when I was very young and I woke up to hear that. There was a man who, my poor mom, she's been through so much. Just like basically a lot of like stalkers, rapists, a different cult leader was trying to get her while she was with this guy, who, by the way, has been in the news a lot lately for branding women in his cult. He brand like branding them. That's the guy. Yeah, that was. That's not this guy, but that's a different guy who He's was the one my who mom's was just friend. Arrested in Mexico. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so while she's like believing in this other dude, Adam, as we're calling him, Keith, the other guy is her friend and is like. Hey, he's like totally manipulating you here. <laughs> you should come to New York and be like be a part of my program. And she didn't. But after everything ended with with Adam, like he was trying to convince her. And there was an article that came out in the Salt Lake Tribune. You can go find it that quotes Keith Ranieri on my mom's experience about her like her own prophet and him like talking shit on this other prophet and making him sound like such a scumbag and <laughs> meanwhile he's like branding women in his sex cult it's great um but i'm the prophet he's the non-prophet <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> these people are just drawn to my mom and luckily only one of them like really got her but even businessmen and weird billionaires and like people who took advantage of her and is your mom just extraordinarily beautiful what do you think it is she is extraordinarily beautiful and she also is extraordinarily um innocent and like sees the best in people no matter how much they fuck her over um and that she still retains that quality 
which st- <laughs> still drives me crazy. But um, she still like manages to see the best in everyone. And she, I remember even as a kid, she would like engage with the crazy homeless person on the street because she like saw that he needed. And I'd be like, mom, he's crazy. Like don't engage with him. He'll follow us. Yeah. And she couldn't see that danger. She couldn't see that risk. Did you feel like that made you feel unprotected? The fact that she was so reckless? In- I didn't feel unprotected. I more felt protective. Um, I wanted to protect her, which um, she thinks is a narrative I've created in adulthood, <laughs> but I don't. Um, but P- yeah, P- I feel like people can sense that quality and are drawn to it. And um, so there were just a lot of characters around, a lot. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Did you have any bad experiences yourself? Um, not as a child, other than just like witnessing things that were happening to her. Um, and like, you know, stalkers trying to break down the door or attack, you know, hearing the attack, but nothing happened to me directly. Not as a child, you say, does that mean as an adult? Well, I think most women have had their various experiences with the horrors of men. But (laughs) not with cult leaders. Not with cult leaders. Okay. No, 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 no. But I, but I want to infiltrate every cult and, and like get in there and meet them, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I'm the most skeptical person ever now i think i don't believe anyone yeah is that is that is that a bad thing do you think i think it can be i think there's a middle ground i think there's a healthy in between um and i definitely lean more to toward not trusting people but also i think to some extent it's kept me safer than i would be otherwise has it hurt you in terms of love uh i don't know yet not so far, but it might. <laughs> it might at some point. Like, I know that I had pretty bad trust issues for a long time. I used to make things up. Like, I used to get yelled at about anything I do. So as a kid, I wound up creating lies about nonsense where I, maybe I would go and get a slice of pizza, but I knew that if I came home and if they asked me where you were and I said I got pizza, hmm. they'd yell at me. So... I would make up these white lies that made no sense to make up. So I'd be like, I think they'd be happier with if I had a sandwich. Wow, so I'd be like, I had a sandwich. Or, but that's just a food-related thing. Or I'd mm-hmm. be like, if I went to the movies, I'd be like, you're wasting money on a movie. So I had all these anticipations of normal things that kids would do. And it's not necessarily true that all of them would have been triggers. But I started developing this habit of making up just very innocuous situations that I was like nothing reporting back, nothing, Mm. you know, just make everything as white bread as it could possibly be. Like, Mm -hmm. where were you at the park? You know, like, (laughs) um, and I remember that I had retained that habit into my early twenties. And when I met my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and we're living together in Brooklyn and I went out for pizza. Pizza is the first one that came to mind. And, and she's like, where where were you? And I'm like, oh, I wasn't anywhere. And she's like, did you have dinner? And I'm like, no. And she's like, oh, do you want to get dinner? And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I remember this like moment of thinking, oh, I probably could have just told her I went out and got a slice of pizza. Like, then I, And I said, actually, I just lied to you. I, I did actually get dinner. I had pizza. She's like, why did you, hmm. why'd you lie? I don't care. I'm like, I don't know let's forget that happened. You know? <laughs> it's great that you were able to acknowledge it in the moment. Yeah. And, and, but it was slowly, but surely from that point on that I'm like, 
there's no reason for me to be dishonest in any way because this person is not going to like hurt me in any way if I am. And there was a safety to that, Mm. but it took me a long time to build up trust in the most basic way Mm -hmm. that most people have um, just to be able to talk honestly about a very normal existence, you know? Mm. Um, So I think like not trusting can really inhibit like your ability to, to develop a relationship with someone because I imagine in your case, it's very hard when you get into a relationship to actually give yourself over to someone because your mom gave herself over in a way that was so extreme that I have to think that it affects your ability to give yourself over in a normal way. That's that's what I'm trying to figure out because I I truly trusted my first two long-term boyfriends, but I also may have selected people I knew I wouldn't want to be with in the long run. Um, so it's been an interesting process navigating like how much of this is just random that it didn't work out and how much of this is selecting partners because I, uh, cause I don't want to fully commit to someone or I don't want to fully be vulnerable and, and let someone in all the way. So you've never had anybody who you were like, oh, I actually think this person could be someone I'd wind up with in a way you're protecting yourself from from the get-go to ever have anything real? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, my last relationship was somebody who I did see a long-term future with, and um, he actually wasn't necessarily super trustworthy. Um, So there may be a pattern there. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I think I also read that you dated Marilyn Manson. Is that correct? Briefly, but yes. How did that come about? Uh, he DM'd me on Twitter after seeing me in some uh, indie horror movie I was in. Um, and then I like just pulled this whole love bombing thing that narcissists do. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Manson. <laughs> what, what happened? Um, are you familiar with that term, love bombing? No. It's it's a narcissistic behavior where they meet someone and um, maybe basically lavish attention on them and make them feel super super special, um, to the point where a lot of people get sucked in and think that, wow, this is happening so fast that this is true love, like this is destiny, you know, this really grandiose style of mm-hmm. dating. Um, I did not actually buy it, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I wasn't. But it was Marilyn Manson, and I really wanted to see what was going to happen. Um, and he did, he disappeared. Is that what your song was about? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because he basically said, I love you, um, after two weeks Mm -hmm. and introduced me to his dad and all this stuff. And I was just annoyed because I, it was just like, well, what was the point? Like, what's the, you didn't, you don't have to say that. Like, I didn't believe you anyway, but why, why even go down that? It's not necessary. Mm -hmm. You know, like we could have just been hanging out and it would have been fine. I think that song is don't say you do, right? If you don't love me, then don't say you do. Yeah. Sweet talk so sweet that I'm getting it. Do they too good to be good? Shouldn't eat it. You talk like you need me, like you never leave me until I begin to believe it. I was good on my own until you. To fall, now you're gone 
Don't say you do. So you were really hurt by that, in other words. Um, I don't. So I remember talking to my friends about it at the time, and they were like, this song sounds way more pained than I know you to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I was annoyed and frustrated, but I am not the type of person who would ever, because of said trust issues, <laughs> yeah. buy into somebody telling me they love me after two weeks or like think that that's a real thing in any way. Um, we were also just a complete and total, like, He's got his own issues going on that I could never deal with. No kidding. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't seem like he doesn't have issues. Yeah. <laughs> They're kind of not my thing. Uh-huh. Um, but I really wanted the story, and now I have it. <laughs> so, so when you get a DM from Marilyn Manson, what's the next step? Do you you meet at a coffee shop? or He... Uh, <laughs> He invited me to Johnny Depp's house uh-huh. to hang out at Johnny Depp's house. Johnny Depp wasn't there, but he was just hanging out there and invited me there. Uh-huh. Um, and so I texted all my friends that if they didn't hear back from me, I was dead from Marilyn Manson. Uh-huh. And uh, I went there and then he was actually really sweet at first and had Googled, uh, clearly had Googled everything about me because like everything he happened to bring up was something that I had mentioned in an interview before. Uh-huh. Um, really sneaky. Which is probably why he brought me there, because there was a theremin there, and I just did an interview about how much I wanted to learn to play the theremin. But he was much sweeter. He was just like a sweet like guy, and I was like, oh, well, this is whatever. I can hang out with this sweet person for a little while. Mm-hmm. And so two weeks into that, he says, I love you. And then he's, he just disappears. And then I wouldn't go on tour with him, and then uh, he disappeared and unretweeted all of the tweets he had tweeted of mine and um, unfollowed me on everything and started retweeting an 18-year-old girl in the Midwest. Uh, yeah. So Poor girl. So it goes. <laughs> Poor girl. <laughs> Did it, I wonder if there was some f- feeling of uh, familiarity with the manipulation tactic. It was, so, it was so not subtle that it was almost a joke. <laughs> like... It, it was it was a very extreme situation. I like I want to be more candid about it, but I don't want to talk shit. But <laughs> um, but it was very clear what was going on. Uh, yeah. How's Johnny Depp's house? What kind of house? It was one of his like three or four houses in West Hollywood. Uh-huh. But that one was cool. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they're friends. Yeah. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about music. Um, your songs, as I've said over and over again are phenomenal. They're like really, really good. Thank you. Um, what's your process of songwriting? Do you, do, do they start as music, first of all, or do they start as lyrics? Uh, it totally depends. And also it's it depends because I'm also a songwriter for other people and that process is kind of different. But for me, um, usually it starts with a sound. Usually it starts with like, a feel that I want and like a little tiny world that I want to create. Mm-hmm. And then the lyrics usually come after that. But with this EP, some of those songs, they just like, the words just kind of spilled out and it was very much at the same time. Cause I was really feeling that, um, that desire to feel the magic. It was like really like bugging me. And it's just like, I really wanted to write a song about that. And yeah, it all just came together. The more I hear your story, the more I feel like the magic is trust. Yeah. Trust and belief and faith 
Yeah. All of those. Yeah. They're all kind of. Kind of the same. Same thing. Different ways. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so do you still feel that? Do you still feel like this desire? Is it a desire to reconnect on a spiritual level or what? What? How would you describe it? Hmm. That's part of it. Part of it is that I'm so cynical and so, um, I feel like the real world is depressing and just so like so many terrible things happening all the time. And part of, part of it is wanting to be able to escape and wanting to be Harry Potter and like discover that Mm -hmm. I'm a wizard, you know? I think you could probably create your own reality. It can be done in a way that's dangerous, like it seems that your mom got sucked into. Mm-hmm. But I think you could do it in a way that's also healthy. Like I realized at some point we all live in a bubble. Yeah. And when my wife started converting to Judaism and I was terrified of getting sucked back into a religious bubble, mm. Um the thought occurred to me that I could manipulate the bubble and I could make the things I don't like about religion good. Rather than fighting, I can I can change. I could be the sculptor in a way of mm-hmm. my own reality. I love that idea. I just like, there's that voice. Um, like I have a lot of friends who believe in various like astrology or tarot or whatever thing is that makes them feel guided in some way and I can't like and it's so cool to watch and when I was you know after all that happened when I was 13 14 I got really into spells and tarot and like wanted to be a witch um and I still love that idea but that that voice like won't I'm like, I, I hate the idea of not living in reality. I hate the idea of like not seeing the truth or the facts objectively and um, constructing a narrative that isn't real, which I guess like we all are all the time. But when it's something so like clearly like not backed up by evidence, mm-hmm. that's when I have a hard time with it. Yeah, I think there are definitely things where you have evidence-based stuff and then there are things that are just mysteries of the universe still yeah and when you live in the in the mysteries that's where there's some fun you know if if things are already proven or disproven there's not much you can do boring but (laughs) i know i should get more into science because i feel like it would be it'd be more there'd be more mystery in my life yeah (laughs) the magic is in the unknown yeah yeah and it's an art and and that's like a big part of why i am an artist and why I'm now moving into filmmaking is because if I, at least I can build those worlds, even if I can't like have them be my real world, I can make them and, and watch them and listen to them. Are there any similarities in the way you write music to the way you're writing movies? Probably, but it's such a different art form that I'm learning. I'm like, it's a whole new animal, but there's certainly a lot of just like the same kind of what do I feel very strongly right now I need to like sound off about that and then structure it and and Mm. then like build this little magical place for me to go I'm sure it varies but if you had to say on average how long does it take you from when you have a concept for a song until you have something you're happy with 
It totally depends. It's, it's happened in an hour and it's happened over the course of days. It totally depends. It depends on who I'm working with. And because I don't play, I don't write my own music, um, They have we have to be in sync in order for it to be quick and... And I'm also really, really picky about melodies and then like being really strong melodies. So that can take a while sometimes. One of the things I love about your music is that there's, there are these epic drops. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no, I don't. No? And like in which? In like all of your songs. Because like, when real, I think of drop, boy, I think of like a you know, DJ drop. It, so <laughs> Well, there's like, there's like, there's, I, I don't know if, I mean, maybe, I don't know musical terms. Okay. But um, maybe I'm saying it wrong, but there's always like, there's, there's, uh, like when the drama, like, there are these these really dramatic peaks in the songs, and there are these. Uh, this is a problem with me interviewing musicians. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what I feel, in in the, <laughs> but I don't know. What it's so called. in Real Boy, you were talking about yeah. uh, which part are you, are you thinking of? Is it I'm gonna make you? Yes, I'm gonna make you. Yeah, there's like like. Um, but like it's almost yeah. like a circus has just right. like come in, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, it's exactly what I'm talking that's about. That's the theatricality that I love. Yes. Yeah. Every time we touch your hands, are colder, colder. There's no beating coming from your wooden chest. Frozen grin, a mannequin. When I get closer, I can see the strings that underneath your. Larger than life. Yes. Yes, I love that. That's the word. It's theatrical, your music. It's it's got these powerful moments in it. Like where, you know, some songs are flat throughout. Mm -hmm. Your songs take you by surprise in these moments. Oh wow. That's so, a compliment. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, it's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> so that I guess that's all I guess that also goes back to my question about will that translate into your films? Are you yes. looking for those things? Yes, 100%. Yeah. I have no interest in um, realistic film. <laughs> like, I, the everything I'm working on is horror or um, a version of fantasy or thriller. Um, I want to create worlds that are totally unlike this one and not recreate the same thing that I live every day. Do you play any instruments? I don't. No? I wish. Ugh. I wish I played piano, but I don't. So how do you find your musicians? It's been a long process of being in Los Angeles. And I like basically got pulled into the pop music circuit by someone who was working at Epic Records at the time who was doing a record deal with me. And then I kind of just met everyone and got pulled into this like world. Cool. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 
Yeah. So you said you're very meticulous with the, the notes you give the musician. Are there meetings? Do you meet with them on a regular basis and and go over it and, and tweak it and change it? Like, do you go into the studio? How does it work? Well, usually, so they're producing, which means they're coming up with all the instrumentations. And generally what I would do would be just play a bunch of references. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it feels inspiring, then move forward. And if it doesn't, ask to change it up. Yeah, okay. they're just playing something and I'm singing like nonsense melodies that don't have lyrics. And if it feels exciting and we like it, then we, you know, see it through. <laughs> How often do you write? Well, it depends on the type of writing. Because right now, right now songwriting is not as frequent as it used to be because I'm definitely doing more screenwriting. But um, every week I'm doing a lot of different kinds of writing. You should not stop songwriting. I Uh, mean, as somebody who's very picky with their music. (laughs) I won't stop. I'll never stop. Yeah. I mean, I got really disappointed when I went through all the music of yours that I could find. I'm like, (laughs) where's more? When is more? Ah, that's so nice. Yeah. It's it's weird how music has felt like more of a difficult process than uh, than film, like or than just like getting to make a short or a music video or a sketch or whatever. Like for some reason, music has just been harder, and I think it's because film is so collaborative. If people want something for their reels, like we can, you can find people who are excited, who are talented. Mm-hmm. For music, if somebody's really talented, a lot of the time they're not going to want to work for free. And since I'm not a producer, it's it's just a harder process. Is your dad a fan of your music? I think so. <laughs> yeah. Because I know you said he's still a religious Mormon. And yeah. I mean, he hasn't watched my last music video, which shows my bare behind. Uh-huh. But um, but yeah, he likes my music. <laughs> <laughs> Is that you in that video lying there? Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I feel warmed up. How about you? Yeah. All right. Let's get philosophical. Okay. Alex, our guy who gives us our mission... Alex Fasella picked a philosopher for you named August Compte. And I don't know if I'm ever saying these names right, but it's <laughs> C-O-M-T-E. And he says what you have in common is because your mom followed a cult leader, he picked a philosopher who talks about finding your identity in religion. Mm. Which I think is an interesting topic for you, especially in this place in your life where it seems like you're looking for an identity in general. It looks like you're trying to figure out where you can fit into this optimism of the world. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't feel like it's a stretch, but I feel like you're acting like it is. Um, I mean, I feel like I feel very settled in my cynicism. Um, <laughs> it doesn't. Be- <laughs> That's not what you said. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I like I don't see a way out of it, but I but I, w- I would love to feel. I would love to that feeling of believing in something. That's not settled. <laughs> That's trapped. But I don't. But I. But I. I just don't think it's gonna happen. Like I, it's not like I'm actually looking for meaning anywhere because I don't think it's there. If that makes sense. So you feel trapped in cynicism. <laughs> <laughs> I feel settled in cynicism. <laughs> uh, you're a prisoner of cynicism. Sure. In other words. <laughs> um. Here's a little synopsis of August Comte. He says, with the advent of science, it is not rational for an intelligent person to believe in religion. However, a society with no beliefs would be materialistic and dangerous. I'll stop there. What do you think of that line so far? Do you I think that last line is absurd. A society without religion would be materialistic and dangerous. With no beliefs. With no beliefs. Oh, 
as well, a society with beliefs is materialistic and dangerous, as we mm -hmm. have exhibited over and over again. Right. So that's not Certainly that's ridiculous. Part of, part of your story. <laughs> yeah. Um, although your mom and was, America's story, <laughs> she did get rid of all her materialism. <laughs> <laughs> so true. But it true. did get more dangerous. <laughs> uh, a church for atheists should be started, he says. Great mm. values like science and art will be studied. With sermons about what we can learn from great thinkers, it would be relevant to us today as opposed to only relevant to people 2,000 years ago. Religion should be valued for its structure to teach but must be updated to preach rational values. Only then can humanity progress. I feel like this guy is probably already on the same lines of thinking as you. Am I right wrong or? yeah i mean yeah i've i've tried going to atheist churches because i'm like i love the idea of gathering and trying to be better people mm -hmm. as a group but without believing in this magic that is unprovable and what were the atheist churches like um one was i was expecting it to be like a like a TED talk place where everyone, you know, the inspirational, uh -huh. but science-based talks, but it kind of was just like shit talking religion, which wasn't great. Yeah. <laughs> Cause like, I already hate it. Like I don't want to like stew in the hatred of it. Um, and then one was Unitarian Universalist, which is just non-denominational and not Christian based. And that actually was great. And I'd love to go back. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also tried Agape, which is that non-denominational church, but that was a little culty for me. Uh huh. What is, how so? Uh, there's like the the founder. There are pictures of him everywhere, and there's like a big cutout poster, cardboard poster of him right next to the ATM. So they replaced God with man. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. yeah. And the whole thing. I mean, it just it was a little too Christiany for my taste. Uh -huh. But I like the idea and theory of a non-denominational church or an atheist church. So, what do you think you're looking for? Community. Community, but also the group pursuit of betterment uh -huh. um i'm in a lot of like activist groups which i sort of get that from that and i've gone to some meditation stuff but I, like a groups of people coming together and wanting to be better people together and like in, enrich each other's lives without imposing any kind of particular belief or deity uh -huh. onto them you know yeah it's all it looks like you're looking for religion minus god yeah kind of yeah kinda. meditation is prayer yeah, although Mormon prayer is nothing. Like, Mormon prayer is just like, whatever. It's not the same thing. It doesn't make me feel the same what way. What is Mormon prayer? I mean, it, there's, it's not like a particular thing. It's just, dear dear Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this day. We thank thee for all these many blessings. It just becomes very rote and um, felt very rehearsed. I remember as a kid, actually, that I was so used to saying the exact same prayers all the time. And it wasn't because there was like a written prayer. It was just, that's what happens. Mm -hmm. um, and I answered the phone and instead of saying hello, I said, dear heavenly father, because <laughs> I was so used to just saying this thing you're uh -huh. supposed to say all the time. And sometimes still I'll find myself like thinking dear heavenly father, instead of like whatever rehearsed thing I'm supposed to say. Um, and it's just like not the same thing. Whereas, and that's like looking outward for help or for like, to get what you want versus meditation is like at least the kind that I like to do, which is mindfulness is looking inward and, and noticing what's going on and trying to take responsibility for it, mm -hmm. you know, or just at least allow it. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I always think prayer in uh, the prayers that I say are in Hebrew 
And I don't really know what a lot of them mean, but I kind of use them personally as a mantra. Hmm. I mean, I can always look up what they mean, and they usually <laughs> probably mean Dear Heavenly Father. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I like the... Um, I like the repetition in, in terms of mantra, and there is something calming about it and that you can be put in a meditative state, mm. and especially the melodic ones. You know, when there's melodies from your childhood, there's something nice about that. And I think, I mean, do you did you have Mormon melodies? Oh, yeah, lots of church songs. Are there any Mormon melodies that you still like? A couple. Most of them were pretty boring, but I, I accidentally ripped one off in a song that I was writing the other day, actually. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Can I hear that one? Um, I'd, it'd be too hard to remember how it actually goes. Just like a little thing. But there's there's one that goes, Teach me to walk in the light of his love. Teach me to pray to my Father above you, you know this one. <laughs> I like that one still. There are lots that I like. Yeah, that sounds like a Disney princess. The one, it, totally, when you do it. totally. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like um, Elsa's gonna come out now. <laughs> <laughs> the Mormon Church does kind of look like the Ice Palace from Frozen. Oh, the temple. Yeah, yeah. it uh, it does. The temples are so majestic and beautiful. I love them. Yeah, they look like fairy tales. I've never been into one, but I've never of been in one. Of course you haven't. But, yeah. <laughs> Why do you say that? You're not allowed. I'm not? No. Are you? No. You have to be temple worthy, which means you have to go to your bishop and uh-huh. confess all your sins, and then he has to deem you worthy and give you like a like a permit, basically. Really? <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't watch my dad get married to his wife because it was in the temple, and I'm not temple worthy. You couldn't have scalped a ticket? <laughs> God doesn't work that way. There's nobody on the black market in the Mormon, like, hey, you want to get into the temple? And, go, uh, and you, they go to scan it, and they're like, this one's already been scanned. <laughs> I wonder how it works. It's been so long. But they do baptisms for the dead in there. If Are you familiar with this practice? No. They There's just, like, lists and lists and lists and lists of people who've died throughout history and they just do baptisms. They start, you start doing that at like 12 or 13. Um, they just dunk you underwater a bunch of times to baptize all the dead people. They dunk living people to mm-hmm. baptize the dead? Mm-hmm. Do they ever, do they ever baptize like a cada- cadaver? <laughs> I don't think so, but you never know. You go to the university and they're like, just give us, we'll, we'll bring them back in an hour. <laughs> I'll come back soaking wet. Oh man. <laughs> Go to the morgue. Hey, let, let me take uh, drawer number 15, 12, <laughs> 7. Their spirits can decide in the afterlife based on the human that's been baptized. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so let's go back to our guy here. And his full name is Isadore Marie Auguste. Francois Xavier <laughs> Comte. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm definitely not saying that right. And I believe he lived from January 19th, 1798 till September 5th, 1857, and was a French philosopher who founded the discipline of praxeology. Hmm. Maybe I said that right. And the doctrine of positivism. Ooh. Positivism. That's what you're looking that sounds for. Sounds nice. He is sometimes regarded as the first philosopher of science in the modern sense of the term. Influenced by the utopian socialist Henry 
Saint-Simon Comte developed the positive philosophy in an attempt to remedy the social malaise of the French Revolution. Calling for a new social doctrine based on the sciences, Comte was a major influence in 19th century thought, influencing the work of social thinkers such as Karl Marx, John Stuart Mill, and George Eliot. His concept of sociology and social evolutionism set the tone for early social theorists and anthropologists such as Harriet Martineau and Herbert Spencer, evolving <laughs> into modern academic sociology presented by Emile. And once they start getting into all the names, I tune out. Uh, but Emile Durkheim as a practical objective social research. Comte's social theories culminated in his religion of humanity, which presaged the development of non-theistic religious hum humanist and secular humanist organizations in the 19th century. Comte may have coined the word altruism. Hmm. Interesting. Well, good for him. Yeah. So... Um, now that we know a little bit about him, <laughs> I always ask the guest to read a paragraph written by him. So would you do the honors? I would. Man's only right is to do his duty. We are born under a load of obligations to our predecessors, to our successors, to our contemporaries. Then, okay. Our speculations upon all subjects pass through three stages. A theological stage in which free play is given to fictions with no proof. The metaphysical stage, characterized by the prevalence of personified entities. Lastly, the positive stage, based upon real facts. So what are these three stages? Let's, let's go through them. So theological, in which free play is given to fictions with no proof. So when you're a child and you're making shit up. Okay. The, right, I assume. The metaphysical stage, characterized by the prevalence of personified entities. What are personified entities? Believing in God or ghosts? Is that uh, maybe is those maybe that's personified what entities? Okay. And then the positive stage based on real facts. That's the stage I like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know why he's calling it positive, though. Um, it feels so negative. <laughs> um, and then the final sentence is... Oh, why, do you, why do you think it feels negative? Because the facts of life are that people are constantly suffering and being harmed and... The world is in turmoil most of the time, and we can get caught up in our everyday lives and, and focus on ourselves and forget it, but it's always happening all the time. Um, and nobody can live in that state of constant awareness, or you just wouldn't be able to function. But, like, right. But fact the facts are that people are, there are just a lot of bad people, and there are a lot of bad things going on. And you've seen him up close and personal. I have, and I haven't even seen. I mean, um, there are refugees suffering far more than I've ever suffered. You know, like, uh, um, and I'm, and I also have the privilege of being white and having never experienced racism. And like, they're just so there's so much all the time. And I, um, the way that I deal with that, like, I I can get very overwhelmed by that idea. So the way that I deal with that is to like join an activist group or like try to like I uh, helped organize a fundraiser last year for Swing Lefts because we're like so upset about the Trump administration um, but like the, f I, the facts of the world are, are ultimately depressing I think and not always 
of course, but like, yeah. <laughs> well, where do you find, where do you find positivity? I find positivity in productivity. I find positivity in creativity um, and in personal connection and my relationships with my family and my friends and um, my, my relationships if, if and when I'm in them. Um, but the impermanence of it all can be very depressing as well. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I'm optimistic. <laughs> um, but, but I would rather like understand the facts of the world that I'm living in so that I can proceed accordingly and make the best decisions that I can make as a person. Um, I would rather that than live in a bubble where I don't know what's going on and I don't think racism is real and I, you know, I think um, whatever problems I'm dealing with that day are just the worst things that have ever happened, you know? Yeah, this is like the question of like becoming so socially conscious that you can shut down. Yeah. There's, there's like, there's got to be a balance where you're like, okay. I need to shut this out to some extent. Otherwise, yeah. I'm going to become part of the problem. Yeah. Because if you get sucked into the sadness, then you're not going to be the light in the world that's going to change things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to regulate that all the time because it's certainly like when if I read the news too much, like I get I go down that hole. Um, but the truth is, like, if I want to help in any way, the best way for me to do that is to like make to advance myself as much as possible. So I'm in a position to help as many people as possible because uh, like, who can I really help right now? Not that many people. <laughs> I don't know. You probably could. I'm sorry to disagree with you, but. <laughs> I mean, some for sure. And I'm like doing, I do whatever I can when I can. But like, I think people, the more power artists have, the more um, like prominence that they find in their careers, the more they're able to help people. Angelina Jolie can help way more people than I can help. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's interesting because it sounds like listening to your story and listening to you talk now that you struggled between like your mother's optimism and wanting to help everybody and that homeless guy on the street mm -hmm. that you're like, leave him alone. <laughs> and then there's, you know, there's this part of you that's like her. And then there's this part of you that's really scared of becoming like her. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. I mean, I'm my mom. I, I do think I have much better boundaries than my mom. Like I can recognize when I'm taking it too far and like not taking care of myself and then I stop and then I take care of myself. Mm -hmm. My mom sometimes will take care of other people to her own detriment. Yeah. It know? sounds like in ways that most people would think unthinkable. Yeah. I mean, well, that particular situation was such a, so much just about belief, but even outside of that, like so much of her life is dedicated to like getting people out of this community or this community mm -hmm. and like, um, just being a charitable person. But like, meanwhile, I want, I wish that she would spend more time on herself, you know? Yeah. And I do spend time on myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it's okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm sure it is okay. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that, that it's, it is important to find that, that line where too much of yourself is selfish. Mm -hmm. Not enough of yourself is also selfish because mm. if you're not taking care of yourself and you're giving and giving there's a selfishness to that as well and that will destroy you mm. because 
if you're giving to take and not giving to give, that's a selfish way of giving. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or I mean, or even if it's compulsive, it's like, yeah, I think, I think we should just always be assessing like what our goal is and why we're doing the things that we're doing. And mm-hmm. too much of any one thing is probably not coming from a place of balance. I think the best way to fix this broken world <laughs> personally is to fix yourself. Um, I think about my friend Ralphie May who passed away as a comedian who I toured with mm. and I did a memorial episode for him on this podcast. And one of the things that was a theme that came up was that he helped so many people, myself included, but then he died at 45 or 46, I think. He died in his early 40s. Mm, so young. So he could have taken care of himself and helped a lot more people over a lot more time. Right. Or less people over more time, and it would have still been more people. But if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not really taking care of anybody. Because everybody who you're now taking care of that relies on you will be left without you. Mm-hmm. Um, his kids unfortunately don't have a father anymore Mm. so what am i trying to get to because i'm getting emotional um my point is that i think the best way to fix this broken world is to be a light onto yourself and to be positive and to try not to get sucked into the dark the darkness of the world and not to get sucked into the negative thinking and the the void and the feeling of of emptiness and meaninglessness of it all. I guess that's kind of why I gravitated towards back towards religion because it felt so optimistic. And I felt that if I could navigate it in a way that I didn't get sucked into the parts of it that I didn't like the first time around, Mm -hmm. um, then I could use it in a way to better my, almost what you're trying to do with, without, I think the big difference is that I never had issues with God. I mm. think me and God have always been cool, or God, or God and I. Sorry, God doesn't like when I'm grammatically incorrect. Um, but I think all the things that you were describing in terms of what you were looking for in the atheist religion are the aspects of religion that I also look for. I think these are basic human needs, community, yeah, meditation, being part of something bigger than yourself, helping others, giving, charity. Uh, all these things that you're doing in various ways are the are the things that religion ideally is supposed to provide you with. Yeah. Unfortunately, because anything where there's a lot of money and power can easily get corrupted. Yeah, and therein lies the problem, I think. Yeah. I, and that, like. But you see it happening with that atheist church as well, with the guy, the founder, whose pictures everywhere. <laughs> yeah. The atheist church is give them like a few hundred years and they'll just. <laughs> <laughs> just become churches. Oh, you know, no. the, the. I like and like therein is my problem with humanity because um <laughs> I'm I'm just fascinated by groups and the way that humans organize and like most whenever there is a hierarchy and hierarchies always form inevitably, like some there will be someone who abuses that power. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I find very scary. That's something that any group of organized people is at risk of like being a victim of, I think. And um, 
so it's hard. So, yeah, it's really hard to navigate when a group is good and when a group is at risk. But if we don't function in groups, then we become incredibly isolated and selfish and and we don't get to be partake in the greater humanity. Sure, sure. Is socialism the answer? Is that, is that the point of this? I mean, there should be groups, but people should be, like, there shouldn't be somebody who's commanding yeah. the group. This is just the first step in me getting you to convert me <laughs> to something so that I can become a cult leader. <laughs> it's a reverse be, of what the other guy uh, did. Oh, man. Um, am I doing a good job? <laughs> <laughs> Where I make you think that I'm not an atheist, so that you convert me, and then I'm turned out to be an atheist prophet. <laughs> an atheist prophet. It's gonna happen. Just an atheist for profit. So that that got the branding cult leader. He like he's just he's a self help group. They're a self help group. You know, like even Tony Robbins. I don't know if you guys saw that video. Um, that came out where he's no. saying all these sexist things and like using his physical power to sort of intimidate this woman who questioned him about the Me Too movement. Like, I just don't trust. I trust no man. <laughs> I trust no man in power. I trust no person in power. Uh huh. Um, but specifically, no man. But specifically, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if there's a way, like my group of friends, I love and I think like I feel a sense of community there. We like have been going strong for quite a while and are there for each other. And I think that's great. Like if there's a way to recreate that in more of a spiritual way and more of a commute, like a larger group, you're now forming a religion, (laughs) (laughs) but where there's no God and nobody is at the top. (laughs) We're just trying to be better together. Mm -hmm. That's how it starts. (laughs) God damn it. Um, I like, yeah, I like mindfulness stuff, but but there are gurus in the, in that world too that just take advantage of people. Yeah. P- people will take advantage of people, yeah. unfortunately, because generally those people were taken advantage of by people mm. and it'll domino and continue until somebody breaks a chain and decides to go for intense EMDR. <laughs> therapy or something wait what's emdr emdr you don't know about emdr no. it's um it's where they like use certain eye movements to uncover old uh, repressed memories oh. and um it's pretty intense emotional stuff oh wow where you can unlock the secrets of your brain and cool. relive your trauma and try and get through it and past it sounds dope yeah it's the secret to uh healing humanity as well Oh, cool. Do you do it? <laughs> no, not yet. But okay. it's daunting. But it's uh, <laughs> it's that. And like I said, being a light onto yourself so that the people around you feel your positivity. And, and just by being that small microchasm of what you might call holiness or pureness or, or whatever the word you want to call it is, is just like a, a good energy. Mm-hmm. You could call it good vibes, man. <laughs> if you're good vibes around a bunch of people and they pick up on your good vibes and they become good vibes <laughs> then slowly but surely the vibes spread and the world becomes a better place wow is that easy <laughs> it has to be it has to just start with you like it yeah it, if you try to change the world you'll you'll probably get sucked into the problems and fail but if you change yourself 
then but you can be an inspiration. But what if you work on both at once? <laughs> you fail. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Try it. All right, we have one more sentence in the paragraph. Why don't you ideas, ideas govern the world or throw it into chaos. Yeah. Huh. Ideas govern the world. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ideas are the root of everything. Yeah. So, I, and yeah. I, don't, I don't know that that's so profound. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> yep. They ideas go make way. stuff happen. Yeah. <laughs> Cool, dude. You want to do the quotes? Yeah. Okay. Quote one. Know yourself to improve yourself. That's what I said. Kind of. Mm, You said make yourself a light. Yeah, but how do you do that? You know yourself. Yeah. Self-awareness is like, that's my thing, man. Gotta have the self-awareness. It's totally about getting to know yourself. Like I work once a week in uh, two rehab facilities for uh, kids with drug addiction. And one thing I've noticed is none of them know themselves. Like kids who are suicidal, a lot of kids cut, um, a lot of kids are on meth or heroin or whatever it is. Mm. And the number one thing I've noticed, because I knew it was true about myself and how I wound up with eating disorders and addiction problems of my own, was that you don't know yourself. And it's not until you start to really know yourself and it's like what I was talking about with trust with my wife that story about like the pizza and stuff once you start to strip away the insecurities and the fears and you actually get to the core of who you are and you find out yeah I'm a a pretty good person I'm there's not much about most people that isn't good I'm 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 a believer in like your mom the good in people (laughs) I think most people are good and I think most people that act in a way that's not good are doing so out of faulty logic that they apply to themselves. Or pain that they haven't addressed. Absolutely, yeah. Definitely also pain. Yeah. But ultimately, it's hard because I, I, I have empathy for everyone who's hurt someone because they were hurt themselves as a child. Like you can imagine that person as a child and what they probably went through and it's and it's awful. But at the, also, if you if they cause harm, then the consequences <laughs> must be faced, you know? Yeah. The thing is, like, if they're not trying to get help, yeah, it's a little more difficult to be empathetic. Right, right. Like, if you're in pain and you try to get help and it doesn't work out, you could be empathetic for at least the person tried. But yeah. so many people, rather than try, will just resort to self-medicating by doing something that's, you know, reliving their own trauma right. to somebody else. Right. And it's like, at least try to have not done that. Yeah. And I think most people that do try wind up not doing those evil things because they wind up with that sense of self-awareness. Hmm. And that is, what was the quote? The Know yourself to improve yourself. Yeah. In, in order to improve yourself, you have to know yourself. You have to understand why you have the impulses you have, the fears you have the things that are making, driving you towards something, whether it's like in the case of the white lie with the pizza slice, why was I doing that? I didn't even know at a certain point I had to retrace it. Mm. But if you want to improve yourself, you have to first figure out why you are the way you are first. Absolutely. I'm on board with that quote. Me too. (laughs) Next one. Yeah. Okay. 
Men are not allowed to think freely about chemistry and biology. Why should they be allowed to think freely about philosophy? They're not. What? <laughs> Men are not allowed to think freely. I, I see what he's saying. Because that's evidence-based? Yeah. Why should they be allowed to think freely about philosophy? Because philosophy is intangible. You can't, like... I mean, I guess psychology is sort of the science version. Yeah, the interesting thing is, for me, about that quote, is that is he really taking a shot at philosophy or religious thinking? Well, I think religious thinking is unprovable, right? Is that what that means? Sometimes it's like, it's an interesting line between philosophy is kind of like we don't know we're trying to figure it out whereas religion is like we know mm. it's this right there's no question about it right so that but and and in a way men are allowed to think freely about chemistry and biology because hypotheses need to be tested to move forward in science <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't get that quote um, yeah, I feel like in theory, it's like, if it's like, you should be operating in a, from a place of facts. I think that's what he's trying to say. But like, we learn more all the time by thinking freely. So the, yeah. we gain new facts. Which is against evidence-based thinking. It's against evidence-based thinking. Yeah. But I, I'm a, I'm a big psychology gal. <laughs> Which <laughs> people say that about you. Do Lola, they? She's a big psychology gal. <laughs> um, which I feel like is sort of the next, I mean, neuroscience and psych psychology are sort of the next, the science version of that. By the way, Lola is the name you came up with, right? Yeah, it's not my real name. Why'd you settle on Lola? Uh, I liked all the cultural associations with Lola. It's like a sexy, saucy. <laughs> subversive name um and i just i'd been candace melanakis my whole life and i just didn't want to be candace melanakis anymore candace melanakis mm -hmm. any relation to andy nope okay <laughs> <laughs> we're just both greek cool yeah um, i think there's one more quote one more quote and it is the dead govern the living well, that's how they get you to baptize them. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds scary to me. Yeah. Uh, the dead govern the living. Well, that's certainly the case of Joseph Smith, right? That's true. Yeah. And Jesus and all the others. L. Ron Hubbard. Uh-huh. Who I thought was a black guy for a long time, and I was really disappointed that it was <laughs> L. Ron and not Elron Hubbard. Uh, <laughs> of course he's a white dude. <laughs> um, I wish the dead governed the living more, in a way. Like, not in the way that we believe in the things that dead people taught, but in the way that we learn from history more and learn from the mistakes humanity has made before because like if if every american 
were and by the way i have such a like such a basic understanding of american history because i did like barely paid attention in high school and i just read people's history so now i'm like a big champion of people's history but uh but at the whole time i was reading i was like how these trump supporters need to read this they have to know like they would know if they like just read history a little more and like learned these lessons before be like we just keep doing the same things over and over and over and over and over through mm-hmm. history. Like we keep having to learn the same lessons. And I wish that we would like call up the dead and be like, what do you, how do we do it? <laughs> and they're like, well, we wound up dead. So <laughs> don't listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> but how do we end up dead a little later in life? <sighs> um, that's my thought on that quote. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Did you enjoy the show? I did. It's good. Meaty. Yeah. Can, <laughs> can I play you out with your own music? Please. All right. Which, which track do you want to be played out to? How about the magic? I want I want you to believe in the magic, Lola. Thank you. In one way or another. Thank I want, you. I want the magic back in your life. <laughs> okay. Wish I could feel what I can't see. Float like a butterfly, scream like a banshee Something's hiding in the pantry But I can't find it, so would you please Enchant me, give me a potion Put my devotion to the emotion everybody thank you so much for tuning in thanks again to lola blanc for being on the show and please do go and donate to gamyo the hooded monk and go to kaori's treatment fund on gofundme that's k-a-o-r-i apostrophe s treatment fund or you can paypal them at ruly r-u-l-y blue baby at hotmail.com please help her to get better and in doing so you'll hopefully be getting better yourself Now, I just want to point out that there's also an opportunity for you to donate to my show. If you donate to my show, proceeds of that will be donated to Kaori's Treatment Fund as well. And that is at moderndayphilosophers.net. You can donate, as did one of our wonderful listeners, a man named Dallas. I don't give out the last names, 
again unless they asked me to. Uh, a guy named Dallas wrote in and he said, Daniel, just listen to the intro of special episode with Patrice O'Neill and Al LaBelle. And I really took in what you said about your struggle in the industry and connections and hope. I suffer with major depression disorders myself. And he goes on to talk about his depression and anxiety. And I understand how you feel. I'm not even going to say, but you have to, but there is hope. But honestly, that would be outside of my expertise, not to mention um, hypocritical. So here's an interesting thing. When I get an email like this and I, and I get them sometimes that people connect with the depressed me and I, I, it's, it's a strange place to be because I was so depressed and I'd say clinically depressed. I went to a clinic. Uh, I went to a rehab for so long and, uh, I authentically was very depressed on the podcast and, and that connects with some people who are going through that right now. And here I am now, and I'm not depressed, and I almost feel guilty when somebody reaches out to me to connect in that way. And I guess I shouldn't because maybe I have a lot to share with people who are going through that now, and, uh, and, and, and I'd like to be able to help them. Um, again, I think that the number one key thing, and, and depression, it's like, it's like being in a relationship. It's like being on a diet. It's constant upkeep. If you stop, if you stop working hard at it for a minute, you're, you're in trouble. Your, your marriage or your relationship can fall apart, your diet can reverse, and your depression can quickly come back. You have to be vigilant and you have to be on top of it all the time. That's what I've learned. And I think the number one cure for depression is not pills. I mean, I'm sure pills can be helpful for some people. They weren't helpful for me. I tried them. The number one thing for me is appreciation. Appreciation is the number one cure for depression, in my opinion. You cannot be depressed and appreciative. You know, they did a study in prisons on prisoners who had life sentences, and they had uh, half of them were suicidal and half of them were thriving in the prison system. And they found the, the key difference between the ones thriving and the ones who were hanging themselves was the ones thriving were appreciative for everything they had in the prison, and the ones who were depressed and killing themselves we're just focused on everything they'd never be able to do again. I'll never be able to go to a swimming pool again or a movie theater again or any of these things. They were focused on what they didn't have and they were depressed. And the prisoners who were focused on what they did have were happy. And I think that's a very true thing to life. For me, anyway, I find that when I'm appreciative, it's impossible to be depressed. So I remind myself once I start slipping back into depression, be appreciative. Be appreciative for everything you have. Be appreciative for the fact that you're alive and start making lists of everything you're appreciative of. And uh, I'm appreciative to all of you who tune into the show and to those of you who write in. And to Dallas, thank you for writing in and, and for sharing that with me. And I'm glad that you were able to relate to me, to the earlier me back then. And I hope that you'll be able to relate to the current me right now where you're no longer depressed and you're, and you're fighting. You're putting up the good fight because you have to fight. I could easily fall back into it, same as I can easily start putting the weight back on or I could wind up fighting with my wife. You have to, you have to work hard. And when you do work hard, you have amazing results. Thank God I've got a great marriage and I'm losing weight and I'm not depressed right now. And I want that for everybody out there in whatever respect that applies to you. So thank you very much, Dallas, for writing in. And please, everybody write in when you want to. I'm always available and you can write to me at thecomical at yahoo.com. I'll get back to you. Uh, occasionally, I'll read your emails. And please, 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 I can't stress this enough, go on iTunes, folks, and leave five stars and a nice comment, a nice rating. Even if you've done it before, 
jump on there and do it again. I don't think we've had one for over a month. And uh, I understand people do it. And they're like, all right, well, I did it. It's done. But uh, we're not showing up lately in the charts at all. And I think it would help a lot with uh, regards to getting some new listeners and visibility if people did that. So please take a minute out of your day and do that. And again, I do want to circle back and stress one more time. I like circle back, whoever came up with that. Stress one more time to please give generously to Gamio and his wife, Kaori's Treatment Fund. Help her to beat this breast cancer. Come on. She's part of the modern day philosopher's family. We got to work hard and, and help each other out. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a wonderful week. Have a wonderful month. I don't know when I'll talk to you again. You don't know. I don't know. But whenever that happens, I hope we both look forward to it. So long, everybody. Goodbye for now. 